Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 218. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT Podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. As always, I'm joined by a wonderful, amazing member of the Blueprint MCAT team to continue our breakdown of Full Length One. If you haven't been following along, we've been breaking down Full Length One now for a while. So you should, you should go back and start at the beginning of Full Length One. I highly recommend you go, just go start back at the beginning of the whole episode <laughs> and or the, the whole series that we have here on the MCAT podcast. So we're going to go ahead and jump in and continue our discussion with Madeline today. Madeline back for another MCAT podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I am good. I'm happy to be back. Happy to be here with you, Ryan. Excited to jump into another passage that will destroy my confidence and uh, tell me that I will be a horrible physician. Yes? Yes, that's actually why I come. It's just <laughs> for that feeling for to give you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. Um, if if only time could go back and, and let medical schools know that I am actually horrible at the MCAT and that I will never be a good physician, that uh, just take it all back and, and that'll be good. Um, as we continue down our journey of Blueprint Full Length One, which everyone can get for free at blueprintprep.com, the biobiochem section has been destroying me as I go through this for for mindset stuff, because I, I love talking about that. If if a student is feeling just absolutely destroyed, passage after passage, discrete section after discrete section for 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 one of the sections on the MCAT or all of the sections on the MCAT, at what point do you tell them just get through it and void it at the end or get through it and again, your subjective judgment in the heat of the moment is probably wrong and, and you'll, you're doing better than you think you are? I think first thing, I would never avoid an exam because of exactly what you just said. Your subjective evaluation of how you're doing 
it's just, it's never going to be accurate. Um, I hate using that word never. We're always against, you know, strong language, but the yeah. truth is like, we are really bad at judging how we've done. And so, yes, you can feel destroyed. You can feel mentally battered. You can feel like you're, you know, going against this un- unbeatable mountain while you're in the MCAT. But at the same time, every passage and every discreet is a new opportunity, is a new chance to kind of, to turn the tables. Um, and so trying to think about it in that way of like, you know what, that one wrecked me. Let's just try on this one. Um, let's, for heaven's sakes, try and just keep going because you absolutely never know how you've done, even if you feel like you've done badly. Even if you guess, <laughs> hell, heck, you might have guessed correctly. Um, so there's a possibility there. And then on top of that, I would never say void your exam personally. Like I had a friend who came out of it and she said, I honest to goodness thought that I failed it. And she got, you know, in the 520s. And she almost voided it. And she came out of it. I'm not even kidding. She came out of it. And she said, I almost voided it. I decided not to. Thank heaven she didn't because that would have been a huge mistake. Um, Not that that's like always the case. There are some, you know, um, physical situations, high anxiety, meltdowns, wherein voiding might be the case. But um, if it's based on a subjective evaluation, I would say don't void, keep going because you never know. And you might have crushed it. Yeah, if only. And and as students kind of watch this, listen to this, uh, I, I'm sure you know classmates who leave their their organic chemistry test going, oh my gosh, I bombed that, and they get their 96% uh, test score back. It continues in medical school. There are those students who you know are going to come out and be very, very vocal about how poorly they thought they did, and they're mm-hmm. the top student in the class. I'm just like enough like stop it <laughs> stop <laughs> humble bragging um that you struggled but still aced it <sighs> all right <There's> a fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah um all right so let's dive back in again to bio biochem passage oh gosh i don't even know anymore passage seven um, and again, just just to let students know there are nine passages with each section 10. 10 passages with each section. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then a, a few sets of discretes for the science-based passages or sections. Yeah. Four, uh, let me see. Four sets of discretes, 10 passages. Okay. Yeah, that goes. Lots of questions. Lots of questions. 59. Oh, all right. Let's go ahead and jump in. Let's do it. Uh, so as we're reading this, um, we are going to read paragraph by paragraph and then go back and highlight based on what we think the main idea of that paragraph or the main points of that paragraph are. So we're jumping right into it. A blood sample was taken from a patient with normal kidney function who displayed symptoms of a heart attack. In order to confirm the suspected diagnosis, a sample of the patient's blood was collected and analyzed for the presence of creatine, kinase, or CK isozymes. So here I'll talk, I would highlight kidney function, heart attack, and creatine or CK isozymes. Because that's saying, hey, we're looking at these two different things maybe comparing, maybe contrasting them. And this is specifically what might be able to do that is the presence of the CK. Isozymes are enzymes with different amino acid sequences that perform similar biological functions. Increased concentrations of CK isozymes in the blood can indicate tissue damage in the heart, skeletal, muscle, or kidneys. CK has three cytosolic isozymes. CK1 is found exclusively in the brain. CK2 is found exclusively in cardiac muscle, and CK3 is present in both skeletal and cardiac muscle. Each isozyme is a dimer containing B subunits, 
M subunits or both B and M subunits. The cytosolic CKB subunits contains a smaller proportion of hydrophobic residues and a greater proportion of acidic residues with low PI values than, than does the cytosolic CKM subunit, which is enriched in asparagine and lysine. Or lysine. CKM subunits are slowly converted to modified subunits, M1 and M2, by plasma carboxyl peptidases via successive cleavage of C-terminal amino acid residues. Awesome. So this is kind of a, high, a very dense passage, but basically it's saying, hey, there are these three types of isozymes. So three cytosolic isozymes, I would highlight that. And then I just highlight the three, the names of the three, CK1, CK2, and CK3. The reason I do this is, yes, there's information about what those are, but as long as I've highlighted those names, I can always come back and find that information there. However, I would want to find a little bit of information that's general to all the isozymes, and that's the fact that they are dimers. So I'd highlight dimer, B subunits, and M subunits. Finally, I had talked about, you know, there's some details about them being acidic residues with low PIs. I would highlight that because that's talking about the different subunits. So that could be definitely useful in a passage question. And then the last things I would do is just highlighting that M1 sub, M subunits can become M1 and M2 with a C-terminal amino acid residues being cleaved. That last little bit. Awesome. So even though we kind of highlight a lot of little segments, this gives us a really good idea that we're looking at these three isozymes. This is what they're made of. This is kind of what those residues are. They can be broken down, and this is how, which is a great kind of summary of what's happening. And then lastly, we're seeing, I mean, sorry, our last paragraph is the, active, the activity levels of each of the three isozymes in the patient's serum drawn and tested approximately 12 hours after the onset of his symptoms via calorimetric method are given in figure one. This is a saying what they're going to be measuring. So I would just highlight the color colorimetric method, and possibly the 12 hours, because that's what we're looking at. Then there's a lot of figures. Um, there's, two fi there's one figure, two, gra uh, two tables. Um, whenever we have these in our passages, it's really important to look at the figure description. So here the figure description says, serum creatine kinase, or CK isozyme activity levels for the patient top table, and normal reference range, bottom table. So now we know, hey, this is about, you know, the combination, the comparison and contrast of normal levels versus non-normal levels for the specific patient. If we need more information, we can come back to that later. The results of an electrophoresis of an electrophoresis of the isolated isozymes, each loaded in an immobilized pH gradient polyacrylamide gel at pH 7, are shown in figure 2. During a heart attack, CK isozymes appear approximately four to eight hours after the onset of chest pain and peak within 40, 24 hours. They return to baseline levels within 48 to 72 hours of the initial onset of symptoms. So here I would just, I would highlight electrophoresis, immobilized pH gradient, polyacrylamide gel at pH 7, because that's what they're testing. Um, anything else that we need to know about that heart attack, we can come and look at um, in that paragraph, but only if they're asked about. And it gives us one last figure, figure two, which is an electrophoretic mobility of isolated creatine kinase protein fraction, fractions. So we know 
where to look. We know kind of what's happening with the pHs, um, but we're going to kind of skip it otherwise um, and then come back if there's a question. Okay. So the passage seemed to be okay-ish. Obviously something from medicine, this, this is relevant to medicine. We, we test these when people are coming in with suspected MIs. So, um, things make sense so far. Uh, all right. So question 35, given the information presented in the passage and the results of the serum electrophoresis, what is the most likely subunit composition of the CK2 isoenzyme? Uh, so A, M, M, B, M, B, C, B, B, or D, the subunit composition cannot be determined by the given information. All right. So um, information presented in the passage, the results of the serum electrophoresis, which is what we have here, right? This figure two is the electrophoresis, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, um, we have positive and negative CK1, CK2, and it's specifically asking for CK2. What is the most likely composition? And then it's asking which of these subunits, so MM and B. And we know that the B has a greater proportion of acidic residues with low PI. Um, And if we look here, CK2 is on the acidic side, correct? Am I reading that correct? Yeah, it's more acidic. It's more acidic. But do we know if... It has enough information, right? So saying CKB subunit contains a smaller proportion of hydrophobic residues, greater proportion of acidic residues with low PI than the M. But based on this figure, do we know what the composition would be? So MM potentially would be um, more basic, MB, maybe in the middle, BB. I don't know if we have enough information to tell us that. Um, And so I'm going to say D because I just don't think we have enough of that information. Great. So if we are looking at this and we go back to that kind of paragraph right above that first figure, two paragraphs above that first figure, where it's saying, and we kind of highlighted a little bit of this, but it says each isozyme is a dimer containing B subunits M subunits are both B and M. So we know we know that it has to have a combination of BB, MM, or MB. Yep. So we know that that has to be a combination here. Correct. And then we go to our three different types, our CK3, CK2, and CK1 in that second figure that you very well, um, very reasonably like pinpointed where we should go. Yep. Um, and we're looking, okay, if we need to have an MM, well, we said MM is going to be more... Um, Basic. Basic, thank you. Um, basic, and we know BB is going to be more acidic. Well, there's only one more option that's in the middle, which is your CK2, which would be a reasonable to think that it's a combination of both, which is going to be B, which is MB. So although we feel like when they say, you know, there's not enough 
information. I think it's really important to first say, how would I evaluate this question independently of that? Because I think a lot of people like to, um, at least I did, like to grab onto that and be like, oh, there's probably not enough. Um, however, if we can try to evaluate it with uh, basically apart from that answer choice and say, I'm going to try to evaluate it the best I can, I think then you're going to be able to come to the more correct answer choice. So here, AA, I mean, A is MM, just like you said, is going to be the one that's the most basic. That's going to be your CK3. B is going to be your middle one, which is going to have your acidic and your basic elements to it, which is going to be more around that middle part, which will be where your CK2 is. So that one makes sense. C, B, B is going to be super acidic. That's going to be your one that's close to that pH equals zero, which is your CK1. So that's going to be pretty much parallel to that. So from that information, we could isolate that CK2 is your NB um, subunit type. So here's, here's the question that I have. So that answer choice makes sense if I'm comparing CK2 to CK3 and CK1 in this figure. Mm-hmm. But it, that's not what the question is specifically asking me. It's just saying, what's the composition of CK2? And so I I just don't, I don't like that answer. But yeah, I, I would say, however, in the question stem, they are saying you can use both the results and the passage. So this is one of those where you have to, you kind of do have to toggle between the passage information, giving you what M subunit is and B subunit is, and the fact that each one of them has to have the combination of MM, MB, or BB. So that's the passage information that you have to use. And then applying that passage information to the figure will then give you the answer. So it's definitely one of those toggling between the two. However, in the question stem, it does say, you know, use both of them presented in the passage and the results of of the electrophoresis. How do we know this? And because we can use both of those, that's why this question actually would make sense in the context. But here's here's where here's where I get way overly analytical. Like I understand that it has to be MMMB or BB. Mm-hmm. But where I am hung up is BB like we don't know. BB could be like super acidic way down here or wherever mm-hmm. it should be, right? Um or BB is just saying it it has a low um this low PI because of the acidic residues, but maybe it's really not that low and it's still closer to seven, right? That's, that's where I'm like, I don't, I don't like, I don't like it. Totally. And I think that that's one of the things too, is if we're looking at that graph, I mean, they're telling you the experimental results. So as much as we can say, maybe it's near seven, well, they're saying you specifically it's, this is the results of CK1, CK2, and CK3. And it has to be one of these three combinations. The most acidic or the most, you know, the lowest pH, it would make sense that's going to have the two subunits that have the low PIs. Yeah. So in the context, that is kind of the only answer that would make sense when you're combining the two, two yeah. pieces of information. Okay. But yeah, no, this one is not easy. I, I think when you have to toggle between the two, that's, that's not a, a fun situation when it comes to questions. Yeah. Okay. I'm just overcomplicating it, I guess, because I just want to, and that's the way my brain works. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So CK isoforms containing M1 and M2 subunits migrate nearer the anode and gel electrophoresis than do CK isos- isoforms containing the unmodified M subunit. 
The region near the C terminus of the unmodified subunit is enriched in which of the following amino acids? So this is a prime example of rephrasing. It's two sentences, there's a lot of words, so it's a good time to say what is important and what is not important. So they're saying when you have your modified M1 and M2 subunits, they go nearer to the anode. So if we look at our M1 and M2 subunits in our passage, they do say that you know, you're gonna have this cleavage of the C terminal amino acid residues. So something there is cleaved that makes them want to go closer to the anode. What is, the first thing I have to know is what is anode? And in a gel electrophoresis, the anode is a positively charged side. Um, so it's a little bit different than what we normally think. So electro, I'm gonna say that one more time for people at home. In gel electrophoresis, anode is positive. So if the anode is positive and they're going nearer to the anode, then it makes sense that, that maybe they have a more, you know, they're taking away some type of positive charge or they're adding in some type of negative charge. But we're not adding in anything, so we have to be taking something away. So if we're taking something away that allows them to be closer to something positive, it makes sense that we're taking away something that's also positive because two positives would repel. So if we take away one of the positives, you're going to be able to get closer to that original positive. Yeah. So if we look through these, we're now just looking for taking away positive um, amino acids. So we're just going to look for the positive ones. So once you can, that's the important thing here. Once you can cull through that question stem and understand, okay, we're looking for the positive amino acids to be taken off. Now we're just looking for something positive. So here we have A, which is Lysine, asparagine, and arginine. Well, lysine and arginine are both positively charged amino acids. So that would make sense. However, we have to go through all of them. So B, leucine, cysteine, and proline. Well, we have some polarity there, but no actual charges. So we can cross that one out. C, we have lysine, alanine, and um, aspartate. Well, lysine's positive, but aspartate's negative. So that basically renders it neutral. So we can cross that out because it doesn't have that overall positivity that we're looking for. And D is going to be our glutamine, aspartate, and glutamate. So again, we have two negatives. So that's exactly opposite of what we want to be looking for. So A with those two positive charges is going to be our correct answer choice here. All right. Back to amino acids are important. You better know them inside and out. <laughs> inside and out. I know I, we always say that if you have one day to study for the MCAT, like, you know, you decide today and you're taking it tomorrow, you should just go and study all your amino acids. <laughs> Oh man, I why, I just don't understand why the WMC loves amino acids so much, right? In in, in medicine, I mean they're mm -hmm. they're important, but that's not how we practice medicine. Like, yeah. oh, what amino acid is causing this diabetes right now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just because it's connected to so many different topics. Like there had to do with you know anode cathode, maybe a little uh, physics situation. They can be added into your gen chem titrations. They can they can really connect to a lot of different topics, and because of that, they can be pulled into each of the sections um, independently. Yeah. So they are highly highly testable. Yeah. Thanks, Double AMC. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. Um, all right. Question thirty-seven. Troponin isoenzymes are used as an alternative biomarker in the diagnosis of heart attacks. In which of the following muscle types does the troponin complex function in contraction? Ooh, all right. Roman numeral, I get, I get a lucky Roman numeral here again. 
So mm-hmm. answer choice one, skeletal, mus- skeletal muscle. Roman numeral two, smooth muscle. Roman numeral three, cardiac muscle. And I'm going to kill myself if I don't know this one, but I probably won't know it because as an exercise <laughs> physiology major, I had to know how muscle functioned inside and out. Um, so troponin, uh, obviously a big part of muscle contraction. The question is, where does it work? I know that troponin is in skeletal muscle. That That's given. And of course, answer choice one is in all of them. So that doesn't help me. Um, cardiac muscle and smooth muscle. Oh, so <sighs> what is the difference between smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, and skeletal muscle? Troponin, myosin. Oh, my Lord. Um, I'm going to say that I don't remember this at all, and I'm just going to guess, which is very sad. Um, Oh, man. Something tells me that cardiac muscle doesn't use troponin, but it has to use troponin because we just said that troponin is used as an alternative biomarker in the diagnosis of heart attacks. So that just answered my question for me. And so we know... Answer choice one and three are both correct. So answer answer choice A and B are out because it's one only and one and two only. So the question is, is troponin used in smooth muscle? And let's not uh, be mean to smooth muscle and say it it also includes troponin, but I forget. So I'm going to say D, one, two, and three. I love it. Um, so it's actually not going to include C- uh, smooth muscle. <laughs> Darn it. So I will say this though. Um, I, I love how we went through, you know, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, one cardiac's in the, uh, the question stem, skeletal, well, we kind of just know that troponin is that kind of key player in that active myosin situation. Um, however, I would also, when I'm looking at this, I see skeletal and I see smooth muscle. And whenever I see those, I always think, well, these are really different because, yep. you know, they have completely different functions. And because of that, I would almost say, well, if they're completely different, they probably don't have the same mechanistic properties. And so if it is skeletal, then it's probably not smooth. And we know it's skeletal because it has to be it's in every single one of the answer choices. And if they're opposites, then we can kind of take out two, which means the only answer choice that would make sense is actually that C, one and three only, even if you didn't know about the, the C. Yeah. So I think that's also part of it. I would also say, you know, skeletal muscle is a striated muscle. Yep. And I actually learned cardi- cardiac muscle as it's named cardiac stri- stri- striated muscle, which is interesting. Uh, but both of those are going to have those those troponins in them. Yeah. So a little bit of content. Um, you could maybe do some reasoning on that one in the sense of skeletal versus smooth and then using that question stem to really uh, kind of get in onto that cardiac muscle train if you yeah. wanted to. I just wanted to be inclusive and not and not uh, yes. not make uh, smooth muscle feel like it's left out. So I'm all in for inclusivity. <laughs> It, yeah, it ruined me on the MCAT, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. All right. Next question. Go ahead. Okay. Considering the results of the laboratory testing given in the passage, which of the following diagnoses concerning the patient is most likely correct? Well, it's telling us exactly where to go. So this is a perfect one to maybe do some process of elimination. Go to the results. Do a general, like, what am I looking at overview, and then go into the answer choices and see 
and compare and contrast the answer choices with your graph or your table. So here we're going to our table. And if we look at our table, we have two different uh, tables. We have a top one and a bottom one. And in the figure description, it actually tells us that the serum creatine kinase isoenzyme activity levels for the patient. So the patient is on the top and the normal reference range is the bottom table. So we know that the patient is the top table, the normal range is in the bottom table. So we're most likely gonna be comparing these numbers. So here I'm just gonna go straight into the answer choices. A, the patient is unlikely to be suffering a heart attack because the elevated CK isoenzymes iso are more closely related or associated with damage to the brain than with damage to the cardiac muscle. At this point, I'm like, whoa, brain, cardiac muscle? <laughs> That's not in our table. However, it was referenced in the paragraph preceding it, wherein it was discussing that each one of the isoenzymes, CK1, CK2, and CK3, are each associated with different places in our body. CK1 is the brain, CK2 is the cardiac muscle, and CK3 is both skeletal and cardiac. So we had to relate that information actually to this table, knowing that one is brain, two, cardiac, three, both. So if we look at our answer choice again, the patient is unlikely to be suffering a heart attack because the elevated CK isoenzymes are close related to um, with damage to the brain. Well, let's look, do they have an abnormal amount of CK1? Well, if we look at the U-L, so basically like how much they have, it's the normal range is 42 to 198, and our patient has a 141. So they're actually in the relative normal range. So we can say no to A. B, additional testing is necessary because the CK isoenzymes that are elevated are not specific to cardiac muscle damage and may also indicate damage to skeletal muscle. Well, the ones that are combined are the CK3. So CK3 is both cardiac and skeletal, and it is high, highly elevated in our patient. However, the one that's specific to cardiac muscle is that CK2. And if we com compare those from the regular numbers, which is a 0.5 to 6, our patient has a number of 219. So highly elevated in that speci specified CK2, which is your cardiac muscle. So it's not necessarily, additional ne testing is not necessary because we see a very highly elevated thing, uh, number for CK2. So B is going to be out because of that. And C starts with the same thing. Additional testing is necessary. Well, we kind of just said it's not really necessary because it has a spe specified isoenzyme that says it's just cardiac. So we could actually take out that just from that first phrase, but let's keep looking at it. Because CK isoenzymes that are markers of cardiac damage appear at normal levels, but may have elevated prior to the time at which the samples are drawn. So here it does say that, you know, the isoenzyme markers for the cardiac damage are at normal levels, but we just said that that's not true. The CK2 is actually highly elevated comparatively. Yep. So C is out. D, the patient is likely suffering a heart attack because his CK isoenzyme levels are indicative of recent cardiac muscle damage in a patient with no signs of kidney disease. Well, we do know that he has no signs of kidney disease. That's given in the first paragraph. Yep. So that part checks out. Um, and then we kind of like what we already said is, yes, they have CK3 um, elevated levels, but more importantly, they have CK2, which is specific to your cardiac um, your cardiac muscle, which is indicative of your heart attack. So D would be correct because of those reasons. Got it. So a nice little compare and contrast there. Yeah. I think a lot of people here would be looking at the percentages. 
Um, I would highly recommend looking at the numbers. I've had a few people kind of get a little confused on that. The percentages are just in comparison to each other, not in comparison necessarily to like the, the normal level. Um, so CK3 compared to CK2 percentages within that patient. Correct. Um, but we want to be looking specifically at that concentration number. So that's a big thing I'd say here is make sure that when they're giving you multiple numbers, be careful which ones you pick to analyze. Yeah. Just, uh, another way of saying that is is for looking at the reference range in a quote unquote normal patient, the far majority of the CK circulating in their body is going to be CK1, mm-hmm. um, CK2, very little, CK3, very, very little. Um, and then uh, the this specific patient coming in, we can see that their CK3 is way, way elevated. But, and it's, it's hard looking at that because you go, wait, 1.9, that's way below. Like that, something abnormal is happening here. But that's, that's where students freak out. But if you look at the, the actual numbers, that's much better. Exactly. All right. Question 39. Hopefully I get an easy one. You get all the easy ones again. Uh, question 39. Which of the following statements is true regarding peptide bonds? Of course, it's going to be a peptide bond one. Uh, found, in the, <laughs> found in the CK subunits analyzed. <clears throat> so peptide bonds found in the CK subunits analyzed. So the subunits analyzed, I'm assuming they're talking about these CK1, 2, and 3. We'll find out. Um, A, they possess partial double bond character. B, they are ionized at physiological pH. C, they occur most commonly in the cis configuration. Or D, they are cleaved by high urea concentrations. Oh, man. All right. So the only place where I remember this is these subunits, CKM subunits, are converted into the modified subunits. Yeah, I don't know where to start looking for this one. So I think that's actually a really good indication of maybe you shouldn't be looking in the passage. Perhaps this is a pseudo-discrete. Thanks a lot, pseudo-discrete. (laughs) okay so yeah once you know that it's like pseudo discrete you can kind of stop looking at the passage and they're asking you specifically about peptide bonds so whether or not you draw it on your paper you imagine it in your mind drawing out a peptide bond could be really useful in this scenario um or just remembering what they are and specifically those peptide bonds are going to be amide bonds that's going to have a carbonyl so a c double o bond which is connected to a nitrogen and nitrogen has a lone pair and is thus able to basically resonate in to create a double bond with your C and then kick some electrons up to your oxygen to create a resonant structure wherein you're delocalizing your electrons. That sounds like a lot of jargon, but basically we're just saying you can move those electrons within those double bonds in an amide bond. And an amide bond is a peptide bond. So they're asking us which of these choices describes that. So A, they possess partial double bond character. Well, we did just say those electrons can kind of toggle between your CO bond and your CN bond. So it would make sense that it would have a double bond character in each of those bonds. Okay. So that's a possibility. B, they are ionized at physiological pH. So I think a lot of people want to kind of tap into that. But a lot of times, this is specifically asking about the peptide bond. It's not asking about the amino acid. And that's what's really important. So ionization does not happen to the peptide bond. It's happening to your side change. Your, my, um, your amine and to your carboxylic acid. 
it's not going to be happening um, within that peptide bond itself. So that's why B is wrong. C, they occur most commonly in the cis configuration. Now, if everybody can either imagine it or draw out that peptide bond, we see that it's actually in the trans configuration. So this is just a false um, description of that peptide bond because it's actually in its opposite, which is the trans configuration, not cis. Okay. And then D, they are cleaved by high urea concentrations. I think this is like a really, like people really want to cling to this because high urea concentrations is a type of denaturate denaturization technique used for proteins. Mm -hmm. However, whenever we're talking about denaturation, we're actually talking about basically splitting up the different levels of uh, protein structure, such as your quaternary, tertiary, and your secondary. Usually when we talk about, actually not usually, when we talk about denaturization, we don't talk about it touching the primary uh, amino acid structure. And peptide bonds are part of that primary structure, not secondary, tertiary, or quaternary. And so high urea concentrations would not affect the peptide bonds there. So that's kind of an important distinction within the actual structure of the protein that will be used for this answer choice. So because of that, B, C, and D are incorrect. And A makes sense because it's just describing what that peptide bond is. Easy peasy. If you know it, you know it. <laughs> you know it, you know it. You know it, you know it. <laughs> yeah. Those pseudo discretes get you every time. Uh -huh. um, okay. So bio biochem continues its uh, stronghold on, on my confidence as we go through the uh, blueprint full length one. But that's okay. I'm going to come back stronger. I'm gonna... <laughs> what is it? What doesn't kill you? Makes you stronger? Uh, sure, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, just another another passage in the books. Um, uh, again, obviously for me as I'm going through this, my confidence level is slowly decreasing, but you get to the end of the passage, you, go, you have to take a breath and reboot and, um, and, and just click that next button because the next passage may be your easiest one yet. Exactly. Might be the easiest, you might know the most, and either way, you got to go forward. <laughs> All right, there you have it. Another great breakdown of MCAT's full-length one bio-biochem passage seven. If you want all of MCAT full-length one from Blueprint, go sign up for a free account over at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. You get a half-length diagnostic full-length one for free, and an amazing study plan tool as well. Again, go check it out, blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT Podcast. This is MedEd Media.